Hello there and thanks for listening to RT Radio's Davis Now Lectures podcast with me, Cleon and Ian Lund. In this episode, we'll hear a talk from the Thomas Davis Lectures Archive from 1982, the centenary year of the birth of James Joyce. Notably, only one woman's voice is among the 12 nevertheless impressive contributors to the series, including Joyce's biographer, Richard Elman, Professor Gus Martin, who went on to establish the annual Dublin James Joyce Summer School at University College Dublin, architectural historian Morris Craig, writers James Plunkett and Seamus Dean, and more. So look out for those where you get your podcasts. Yvonne Boland entitled her talk, James Joyce, The Young Romantic. She considers how early on Joyce was taken with romanticism, only to soon after reject what it represented. How and why Joyce's first poetry collection, Chamber Music, was nearly not published, and his developing prose writing at what Boland describes as the critical young years of composition through a close look at A Little Cloud from his short story collection Dubliners, as well as some passages from a portrait of the artist as a young man. Here is Ivan Boland. That young man in the celebrated photograph, squinting into the sun, hands in his pockets, cap set rakishly on his head, seems the very embodiment of romanticism. With his air of defiance, his corner boy indifference and the bohemian swagger, He seems the absolute young romantic. But is he? I don't think so. And that is what I shall be addressing myself to in this lecture, to James Joyce in the critical young years of composition, when he was writing chamber music as he was finishing Dubliners, when he took a wife and became an exile, and when, above all, he pioneered an artistic stance that released him from the meshes and toils of that most insidious European ideology, Romanticism. On a spring night in the year 1907, in early April, James Joyce set out determinedly for the post office in Trieste. With him went his brother Stanislaus. Indeed, it's on Stanislaus that we have to rely for an account of this incident. As they went, they argued back and forth until the early, cold hours of the spring morning found them still in the piazza, walking round and around, and still in disagreement. The topic that excited them so much was whether or not Chamber Music, Joyce's first book of poetry, should be published. The book was set. Joyce himself had corrected the page proofs in March and had sent them back. But now he wanted to cable Elkin Matthews, the publisher, with instructions to scrap the whole project. The book was insincere, said Joyce to his brother a fake. These were love poems, but he was not a love poet. This was dishonesty, and his chief purpose in writing was to be honest. But finally, in the early hours of the morning, his faithful brother prevailed. And that is how we come to have chamber music, Joyce's first book of poetry, and his first published work. Joyce's doubts about chamber music were not new. They had nagged at him months earlier, as he was assembling the text, and he had written the previous October to his brother in a tetchy defensive tone. I don't like the book, he wrote, but I wish it were published and be damned to it. However, it is a young man's book. I felt like that. I will keep a copy myself, and, so far as I can remember, at the top of each page I will put an address or a street so that when I open the book I can revisit the places where I wrote the different songs and many and various had been those places. 
He had written one of the best lyrics from chamber music, the one that begins, I hear an army charging upon the land, in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, when he was probably meant to be engaged on more studious pursuits. Another had been sent a few months earlier in 1902, when he himself was 20, on the back of a postcard, back to John Francis Byrne, the Cranley of the portrait. The poem had been scribbled on the back of a photo postcard on which he was shown disappearing into an army issue overcoat and a left bank hat. Yet another had been written after a happy day in the Dublin Hills with Mary Sheehy and Francis Skeffington. This was the occasion on which Joyce in a yachting cap and canvas shoes had been blithely irreverent and Mary Sheehy had said to him, I think you are very wicked to which Joyce had given the entirely characteristic answer, No, but I do my best. For good or ill, these demure poems were the archive of his early youth. A strange archive, perhaps, perhaps even an inappropriate one. It was of some of these poems, after all, that A.E., confronting the twenty-year-old Joyce, had ventured the remark, You have not enough chaos in you to make a world. Well, was A.E. right? Is there enough chaos in these slight lyrics? Well, not enough, certainly, to satisfy Joyce himself. One page of a little cloud he wrote defiantly of one of the stories in Dubliners gives me more pleasure than all my verses. So perhaps the time has come to take a closer look at the twin initiatives of the young romantic, at the poetry he wrote and the prose he preferred to it. Here is a poem from Chamber Music. The second in the sequence, in fact. I haven't entirely chosen it on merit, though it is entirely characteristic of the book, but more because it has in it a description of evening. Here it is. The twilight turns from amethyst to deep and deeper blue. The lamp fills with a pale green glow the trees of the avenue. The old piano plays an air sedate and slow and gay. She bends upon the yellow keys, her head inclines this way, shy thoughts and grave wide eyes and hands that wander as they list. The twilight turns to darker blue with lights of amethyst. Now it isn't a negligible poem by any means. In fact, there are some things in it that have the charm of a sepia photograph. And there are others that somehow hint at the pain of the gentility and shabbiness Joyce had known in his own Dublin boyhood. That piano and the pretty girl playing it aimlessly, and the avenue becoming green in the lamplight. It's all musical enough to make us even believe for a minute that it had existed. Then the minute passes, and how neat it seems, how packaged, how calculated and precise, like a minuet. And there is something unsatisfactory about that calculation, like a deception that has been practised on us, a sleight of hand. Now, here by contrast, is a passage from that story, A Little Cloud, which Joyce had said in the letter had given him more pleasure than all his verses. It's a story from Dubliners about little Chandler, clerk at the King's Inns, who can only survive the mechanical death of routine and the monotony of his life by pondering enviously on the glamour of his friend Gallagher, who has gone to London and become a journalist and has got on. 
The story ends, as do so many of them in Dalinas, amid the disappointments and confusions of domesticity. But here, at the opening of the story, is again an evocation of a Dublin evening. But with what a difference. Little Chandler quickened his pace. For the first time in his life, he felt himself superior to the people he passed. For the first time, his soul revolted against the dull inelegance of Cable Street. There was no doubt about it. If you wanted to succeed, you had to go away. You could do nothing in Dublin. As he crossed Grattan Bridge, he looked down the river to the lower quays and pitied the poor, stunted houses. They seemed to him a band of tramps, huddled together along the river banks, their old coats covered with dust and soot, stupefied by the panorama of sunset and waiting for the first chill of night to bid them arise, shake themselves and be gone. It's a world of difference, but the difference isn't just in style. It's in vision also. The poem, despite its qualities, and it would be foolish to deny them, is like a shuttered room. No light gets in and no noise. Its effects are achieved by claustrophobia. The prose, on the other hand, is a wide avenue. Everything goes by and we are witnesses to it. The banal with the poetic, the wonderful image of the vagrant houses in the dusk, beside the ironies with which little Chandler's self-deceptions are presented. The prose smells of human failure, yet how beautiful it is, while the poem that is so carefully manicured fails before our eyes. How are we to assess all this, this phenomenon of a young man writing almost contradictory accounts of his experience in conflicting forms? Well, before it can be assessed, it must be faced. Chamber music has often been written about and commented on by critics as if it were some kind of aberration in Joyce's development. Personally, I find this difficult to accept. I have come to think of these poems not as an aberration, but as a disguise that in the end did not fit. There is, after all, always a struggle in the apprentice writer between the world of fantasy and the world of imagination. And deep in chamber music, locked into its cadences as securely as into a code, is a fantasy of James Joyce. But of what was the fantasy? By the end of the 19th century, Romanticism was beginning to lose its momentum. Its great propositions had been undermined, its tongue was spoken in Babel. But what precisely was it, this infection which had swept through the artistic community of the last hundred years? Hegel had called Romanticism the mood in which, and these are his words, the world of inwardness celebrates its triumph over the outer world. And there were many more learned definitions of Romanticism abounding in the 19th century. But for the individual poet, it had been a singular fever an emphasis on the primitive and the visionary, an exaltation of feeling, a subtle suggestion that the poet was just a stringed lute across which a divine wind played. In other words, Romanticism constituted a supreme flattery of the artist, and as such, corruption was bound to set in, but not at first. In the early part of the 19th century, it had been a necessary emancipation from Augustan convention. 
and in Tennyson's time its excesses had been restrained by the Victorian ethos. But by the time James Joyce was born, the fever had become a fret. Self-expression had declined into self-indulgence, and this climate of exhibitionism was to last in all the arts until 1900, giving a distinctive colour to the term fin de siècle. Then, in 1900, writes Yeats, everybody got down off his stilts. Henceforth, nobody drank absinthe with his black coffee, nobody went mad, nobody committed suicide, nobody joined the Catholic Church, or if they did, I have forgotten. Yeats wrote these comments in his introduction to the Oxford Book of Modern Poetry. He had, after all, lived through that time. He had known those men, he had been partly formed by them. Those poets, he goes on in the same piece, said to one another over their black coffee, a recently imported fashion, we must purify poetry of everything that is not poetry. Poetry was a tradition like religion and liable to corruption. And it seemed that they could best restore it by writing lyrics that were technically perfect, their emotion pitched high. And as Pater offered, instead of moral earnestness, life lived as a pure gem-like flame. All accepted him as a master. Well, I think it's here, among the coffee cups and the ritual purifications of the fantasy act, that we find the fantasy behind Joyce's chamber music. The discreet emotions and technical restraints of the book would have been welcomed at any meeting of the Rhymers Club. And it really isn't surprising that Joyce, who was the most sensitive of writers, should have caught the contagion of the generation just before him. In the dingy London taverns over their black coffee and absinthe, those poets Yeats had called the tragic generation had finally become masters of decadence. And by decadence I don't refer to their morals, but to the separation of style from substance which characterised their work. These men were above all stylists. The more their lives became the substance of tragedy, the more their styles became pure, rarefied, an absolute evasion of anything that was intellectually disturbing or emotionally revealing. It is to that genre of romanticism, then, that chamber music belongs, just as it is that particular brand of stylistic perfectionism that is stamped across all Joyce's early attempts at poetry. But it's important to remember that these men perished as artists before they died as men. And they perished not among the drugs and malnutrition and disease of fantasy at London, but among their own close vowels and neat meters, and among the aridities of their own intellects. Did Joyce really want to be that kind of poet? I don't think so. But there's no doubt that their idea of the poet, the high priest, the doomed prophet, was attractive to him. And chamber music represents his dalliance with the idea. And I'm not sure that there isn't something a bit more to it as well. Joyce, after all, was also a stylist. Within him also was the temptation to employ style for its own sake. But if that was the particular bequest which he took from the 19th century, from the 20th he took his disappointed intelligence that made him prefer a human truth to an artistic one. There is a wonderfully funny passage in A Little Cloud about little Chandler wondering whether or not he should go to London and become a success as a poet.
It's hard not to see the young Joyce in the piece, growing out of his own poetic fantasies in front of our own eyes. Here is the passage. Little Chandler is still on his way through the Dublin evening to meet Gallagher, but with every step of the way, his destiny looms larger before him. Every step brought him nearer to London, further from his own sober, inartistic life. A light began to tremble on the horizon of his mind. He was not so old, 32. His temperament might be said to be just at the point of maturity. There were so many different moods and impressions that he wished to express in verse. He felt them within him. He tried to weigh his soul to see if it was a poet's soul. Melancholy was the dominant note of his temperament, he thought, but it was a melancholy tempered by recurrences of faith and resignation and simple joy. If he could give expression to it in a book of poems, perhaps men might listen. He would never be popular, he saw that. He wouldn't sway the crowd, but he might appeal to a little circle of kindred minds. The English critics, perhaps, would recognise him as one of the Celtic school by reason of the melancholy tone of his poems. Besides that, he would put in allusions. He began to invent sentences and phrases from the notices which his book would get. Mr Chandler has the gift of easy and graceful verse. A wistful sadness pervades these poems. The Celtic note. It was a pity his name was not more Irish-looking. Perhaps it would be better to insert his mother's name before the surname. Thomas Malone Chandler? Better still, T. Malone Chandler. He would speak to Gallagher about it. I think it's fair to say that something saved Joyce from Romanticism. And it was something much more than a sense of the ridiculous. However, that sparkles in the passage I've just read from a little cloud. Well, what was that something? It certainly wasn't anything vague, like love of life or mere redirection of purpose. No, there was a hard, precise edge to Joyce's ambition, even when he was a very young man. And I think we begin to find an answer to the nature of that ambition and the way it directed him in something another Irishman wrote only a few years before Joyce was born. William Edward Hartpole Leckie, to give him all his titles, was the great historian of Ireland's dark century. His lucid analysis of the Irish 18th century came off the presses between the years 1878 and 1890. For the historian, it may well be the depth of research that has made it a standard reference. But for the layperson, it is the mix of cool analysis and a disengaged but ardent sense of justice that is so striking, and never more so than in his dissection of the effect which the penal laws had left on the Irish character. In Ireland, Leckie writes, law was recognised by the Catholic community as a real, powerful, omnipresent agent, immoral, irreligious and maleficent. All their higher and nobler life lay beyond its pale. Illegal combination was consecrated when it was essential to the performance of religious duty. Illegal violence was the natural protection against immoral laws. Therefore, the penal code rendered absolutely impossible in Ireland the formation of that habit of instinctive and unreasoning reverence for law which is one of the most essential conditions of English civilization. I can't resist finally fleshing out 
this portrait of the young Joyce with Leckie's words. Certainly no one could accuse Joyce of any instinctive and unreasoning reverence for the law, any law. I will tell you what I will do and what I will not do, says Stephen Dedalus to Cranley in the last pages of the portrait. I will not serve that in which I no longer believe, whether it call itself my home or my fatherland or my church. And I will try to express myself in some mode of life or art as freely as I can and as wholly as I can. But I think Leckie's words have a further application than that. I think what actually saved Joyce from the dryness of Romanticism was his recognition in his early twenties that his destiny was not just that of the private writer. Joyce saw himself as more than a personal visionary. It's certainly clear from those last pages of the portrait that he was determined to be a racial artist and that he took for his constituency all that silent and wounded confusion that Leckie portrays with all its scar tissue. At an age when most young men are turning love sonnets, Joyce shouldered his obligations to his own people. It's all there in this passage from the portrait in which he imagines a primitive man in the west of Ireland at once alien and familiar to him. The entry is taken from Stephen Dedalus's diary. John Alphonsus Mulrennan has just returned from the west of Ireland. European and Asiatic papers, please copy. He told us he met an old man there in a mountain cabin. Old man had red eyes and short pipe. Old man spoke Irish. Mulrennan spoke Irish. Then old man and Mulrennan spoke English. Mulrennan spoke to him about universe and stars. Old man sat, listened, smoked, spat. Then said, ah, there must be terrible queer creatures at the latter end of the world. I fear him. I fear his red-rimmed, horny eyes. It is with him I must struggle all through this night till day come, till he or I lie dead, gripping him by the sinewy throat till... till what? Till he yield to me? No, I mean him no harm. These final pages of the portrait are Joyce's testament of youth. It's in them that he rehearses the fears and grandeurs of the destiny he saw for himself, wavering between delusion and a sense of the absurd. It is in them also that all the poetry of his youth that had been so confined and cabined by his actual poems gets free at last. Anyone who loves Joyce has a special feeling for these pages, where he finds his feet and tests his wings. And it is with some of these final words I intend to finish. Our hero has grown up. For all their flourish, these are not the words of a young romantic, but of a finished artist. Joyce was now ready to bring a radical and comic vision into the mainstream of European literature. And here, in the final passage from the portrait, he gives his matchless reasons for doing so. The spell of arms and voices, the white arms of roads, their promise of close embraces, and the black arms of tall ships that stand against the moon, their tale of distant nations. There held out to say, we are alone, come. And the voices say with them, 
we are your kinsmen, and the air is thick with their company as they call to me, their kinsmen, making ready to go, shaking the wings of their exultant and terrible youth. Mother is putting my new second-hand clothes in order. She prays now, she says, that I may learn in my own life and away from home and friends what the heart is and what it feels. Amen. So be it. Welcome, O life. I go to encounter for the millionth time the reality of experience and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. That was Yvonne Boland and her talk James Joyce, The Young Romantic from the 1982 RT Radio Thomas Davis Lectures Archives. Go to the Davis Now Lectures website for more information on rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Davis Now Lectures and find further new and archived Davis Now Lectures where you get your podcasts. From me, producer Cleon and Ian Lund, thank you for listening. <laughs>